Good to have those of you that are joining us online. I pray you have your Bibles ready and everyone in here has their Bible open uh, to Matthew 22, ready to study God's Word. Uh, so there was that. The second thing I want to mention uh, is this coming Wednesday night in the Fellowship Hall to your left. Uh, we will c continue our beginning of a new study in Romans chapter 12 with Chip Ingram on true spirituality. That will be a 12-session study, study. So this will be our second week going into that. And we're just introducing it. And if you don't have your book, we'll have those available for you on Wednesday of this week. Matthew chapter 22. Uh, in a moment, we're going to be reading verses 23 to 33. I'm going to take just a few seconds even to recap where we are so that we can then go into this particular new text. It is day three of what we're calling the Passion Week. It's the third day of that. Jesus is still just a couple of days away from being put on trial. We know that he's arrested and ultimately crucified. When I say day one, what comes to your mind, those of you that have been with us, so we keep rehearsing this, day one is his triumphal entry. Day two, we could talk about a lot of nuances and details, but the main thing was that he goes in and he cleanses the temple of those that were making profit from coin exchange and from selling animals inside the temple courts. He ended up healing some people and some children praised him as the Christ, the, the son of David. That morning he had cursed a fig tree. Day three, which is this day, on the way back into the temple, they noticed the, the fig tree had withered away. The Lord goes in, he starts teaching. Many people in the temple, crowds are gathered. His enemies come and ask him, where in the world do you get the authority to do the things that you've been doing? The Lord then tells three parables that the brunt of the point of those parables is against his enemies, the leaders of Israel, that are not leading the people of Israel in the way of God. Three very stinging parables. That is then culminated. So we're still on this third day in the temple. That is culminated in a series of three questions. Last week we looked at the first one. Enemy number one. So in other words, as the Lamb of God that's going to be offered for our sins... The lamb has to be examined, and Jesus is being examined by his enemies. The Pharisees come and they ask him a question about taxes, trying to get him in trouble, entangle his words, get him in trouble with the law, or get his close followers of the Jews to get offended. It doesn't work. The Lord gives the classic answer, should you pay your taxes? They want to know, should we pay these taxes to Caesar as if Caesar owns us? And the Lord says, whose image and inscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's image is on the denarius coin. He says, then render to Caesar that which is Caesar. In other words, he has a place. He is the ruling authority politically. But he says, render to God the things that are God's. So Caesar is not God. Only God is God. And we are to give properly to both. And so he gives us a little outline of what New Testament giving is. They tried and failed to trip him in his words. It just will not work. Group number two is going to come, and they're the Sadducees. Would you look with me at verse 23? Here comes the second group of in it. So the Pharisees have gone away. They struck out. Here comes the second group trying their hand. Verse 23. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. Remember that thought. It's going to be a key thought all the way through. So here come the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Say, teacher, again, pretending to be respectful, just like the Pharisees had done, flattery, here they go, the same method. Verse 24, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow. So you get the picture. This man has married. He dies. They do not have children. Again, verse 24. Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. In other words, the next brother needs to come in line, marry the widow, raise up children to the first brother. No question yet. They're just kind of laying the groundwork out of Deuteronomy 25. Now verse 25. They said, now there were seven brothers among us, seven brothers. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So, first brother marries, dies, no children, leaves his wife, the widow, to his brother. 
we're working toward what Moses has talked about. Verse 26, though, so to the second, implying the second brother married her and he died without having children. Verse 26 again, so to the second and the third. The third brother marries, has no children, and dies. Down to the seventh, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh. What have we had? We had seven brothers. We've had seven weddings, seven marriages, no children. Verse 27, after them all, the woman died. Eight lives, eight deaths, seven marriages, no children. Here's, they're finally getting to the question. After them all, I'm sorry, verse 28, in the resurrection, remember they don't believe in the resurrection. They're doing hypothetical. They're being facetious. They're trying to trap the Lord. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, these seven brothers, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. That's their question. Verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Here's his answer. You're wrong. What's the answer? Which of the seven? The answer is, you are wrong. Because, he's going to give them some reasons they're wrong. Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they don't believe in this, Jesus speaks very matter-of-factly, for in the resurrection they neither marry. The answer to your question, which one of the husbands, which one of the brothers will she be married to? Verse 30, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. What he's saying is, in the resurrection men do not get married, women are not given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. He answers their question, and now, while he's at it, he's going to go ahead and address the theological issue. Since I have your attention, and we're talking about this topic, verse 31, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Have you not read? Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Have you not read this? Jesus concludes, He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. You'll not see it on the screen. I'll look to it later. Look ahead at verse 34 if you have your Bible open. When the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees. That'll be next week, Lord willing. But He silenced now the Sadducees. The crowd is astonished and amazed at His teaching. Let's notice two things. You're looking at your Bible. If you have paragraphs like I do, in my Bible you see our two points. Very clear. Verses 23 to 28 is a point. 29 to 33. Notice number one this morning. The Sadducees question Jesus. The Sadducees question Jesus. Right at the outset, I want us to write down. Let's keep your pens going if you're taking notes. Would you notice with me five things that we know about the Sadducees? Number one, as you read in the text, the Sadducees did not believe in life after death. Guys, this is an amazing fact. This is absolutely amazing. How is this possible that leaders in the nation of Israel 2,000 years ago had come to a point they don't even believe in life after death? In other words, they don't believe in the event of resurrection and they don't believe in the state, the status of being resurrected. They just don't believe in the resurrection. Life after death, it doesn't exist. It's just this life. That's the way they think. Second thing we know about the Sadducees. They denied the existence of angels and demons and even spirits. In other words, you don't have a spirit in their theology. There's no such thing as angels or demons. Those are just mere impressions from God. We know this from Acts chapter 23, verse 8, if you want to write that off to the side by the second point. They deny the existence of the spirit world. They're not real. Number three, this is a very important point. Remember this one. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They only accept the first five books of the Old Testament as being authoritative. So the books of Moses, what they would call the Torah, they receive that as truth. That has authority, but all the rest. Now, obviously, they did not have the New Testament at that point. But think about what they do not believe in. They don't believe in the historical books. All that Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, David, all those kings, Saul, all the various kings. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. 
They don't believe in all of those sections, those five books that make up the poetical books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They don't believe in the 17 books of the prophet. Those are not authoritative. We don't believe in all those extra writings that the Pharisees put on all their rules and regulations and all their traditions. We don't believe in those books. Just these five. That's all that they believe. You want to, you want to discuss theology with them? You have to come to them from these five books. Fourth thing about the Sadducees. They controlled the office, uh, this is important, the high priest is going to be a Sadducee because the Sadducees control, they have the majority control of the Sanhedrin. So humanly speaking, you have the Romans are in charge of Israel at this time. The Roman Empire is in full swing. Underneath that, they let the Jews have a 71-member Sanhedrin that is presided over locally, nationally by the high priest. But of the other 70 people, they're dominated by the chief priest who always is going to make sure that one of them is appointed as the high priest. So the scribes of the Pharisees are, are in on this 71 and some elders of the people, but predominantly the Sadducees dominate the political scene. And that leads to the fifth thing. They love their power and their goal is to maintain, this is what they live for. This, this is their mindset. We have to know this going in. Their mindset is to maintain their power by keeping the peace with Rome. They know that Rome lets them have a semblance of authority on a national level. They're kind of in charge on the international level, empire-wide, the Romans rule. The Romans are like, hey, you keep things under control over there in Israel, and we're going to kind of let you alone. And they want to keep the peace. They want to keep things as a status quo, stay on a good relationship with the Romans. Now look at your list. You've just written it out. Put it up. Don't believe in life after death. Angels and demons don't exist. Only five books of the Bible. They, they're really all about the politics and keeping their power. And so now I want to ask you this question. Does the Old Testament teach the doctrine of the resurrection? That's the question. Well, I want to tell you. Yes, the Old Testament teaches the doctrine of the resurrection. But this was surprising to me. I'm going to admit something to you. It's not nearly as much as you think it is or you think it would be. And it's not nearly as much as the New Testament puts before us. There's only a few places in the Old Testament that it is very, very clear that there's life after death and there is this resurrected life. I should have had them on the screen. You're not going to see them there. Maybe if you want to jot these down quickly, maybe you can do that. I'm going to read them. This first one will sound familiar. You ready? Job 19. Listen to what the Old Testament teaches. Job 19, verse, I'm going to go back to verse 25. Have you heard this before? Job writes, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last... And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And Job says, after my skin has been thus destroyed, he's talking about when he dies, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, my heart faints within me. Did you catch what he just said? My Redeemer lives. I know that he's going to stand. I will see him even when the skin, skin worms have just taken over and, and taken my skin away. Long after I'm dead, I will see God. Job 19. Listen to Psalm 49, Psalm 49, verse 15. Catch it. But God will ransom my soul. This is the sons of Korah. So these are the, the priests. These are those who praise God. Verse, six, verse 15, Psalm 49. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, the place of the dead. For he will receive me. God will ransom me from the place of the dead. Psalm 59. Now listen to Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26 verse 19. Hear this one. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. That's encouraging. That's very clear. Probably the most clear, the most accepted by all would be Daniel chapter 12 verse number 2. Hear it. The last chapter of Daniel verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Hear it again. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. I just read you four passages. There's another in Psalm 16 that the psalmist we know is talking about, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Did you catch the references? Are you paying? Watch. Job 19. Psalm 49, Isaiah 26, Daniel chapter 12. 
Where are those not? They're not in the Torah. They're not in the books of the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. They're not from there, and so, taking notes, write this down. The Sadducees, as far as they're concerned, you guys can believe all that that you want. The resurrection is not taught, in their minds, is not taught in the Torah. It's not taught in the Pentateuch. It's not taught in the books of Moses. So now as we make our way back, you're still in Matthew 22. This puzzles me, right? So I got to thinking, these guys are, again, I'm seeing if you're tracking with me. These guys have the office of the high priest. They dominate the chief priest. A few other people, they're not a large number, but they have great political influence. High priests, chief priests, what does that tell you about them? They are what? What are they? What group of them? They're Jewish, but if we could be more specific, they occupy the positions of the high priest, the chief priests. Priests, what does that tell you about them? Not just Jews, they are of the tribe of Levi. That means they spend their lives on a rotation around the temple of God and around all these sacrifices. And all I could think was, how? And we don't know the details. When did this happen? When did this just politicism and non-theology creep into the people of God? How is this possible? And all I could be reminded of, Jeff, there is a danger in becoming too familiar with the things of God and things of religion that you don't let them penetrate your heart. You actually become callous to them and inoculated to them. This became just a job to these people. They started realizing that the Jewish religion, the nation is one thing, that's them politically, but the Jewish religion is a way for them to make money. Remember, it's all about power for them. They realized that they could skim extra offerings. Yes, we would know that some's got to go to keeping the temple up, but we're going to make ourselves wealthy. You remember when Jesus cleansed the temple? It's this group that, that he was targeting. They realize that we can make money because when people come to pay the temple tax, they have to pay it in temple money and not in Roman or Greek money. And so we're going to make money off of the exchange. And they charge an exorbitant rate. But worse yet, certainly when people come to to Passover or Pentecost or the Feast of Tabernacles or they just make a trip to Israel, they're going to offer sacrifices. But they'd set up a system that was so corrupt that you really couldn't bring your own animal, though it meets all the criteria. You needed to buy a sacrificial animal that was one of theirs that was being sold. They've already pre-approved these. If it's not one of ours, we're going to reject it. And they would charge you way more than what you would have paid outside the temple. They're making money hand over fist. They're living, if I could say it this way, they're living to keep their political power and line their pockets. This is literally how they live. And you say, Jeff, what do you say to that? Here's what I say. Why not? Why not? Might as well. If you honestly think this is it, there is no life after death, and you can get away with all of this, why not? I want to ask you a question. To answer this, you would really need to go home and really just sit and be quiet and think for a while. You would, most of you, now there are some different personalities, I understand. Most of you would come to the same conclusion I did. If you really thought there is no life after death, if you really truly thought it is just this life, how would you live? How would you live? This is it. This is your one shot. You know what I would do? If I could go back and relive my life, and I honestly believed it's just this life, I'll tell you what I would do. I'd try to figure out what skills and resources I have, try to get the training needed, get what experience needed, and here's be my goal. I'd try to get a job that paid the absolute most money I could make. Hopefully I would like the job, or at least not hate the job. I would try to make the most money I possibly. You said, Jeff, why would you do that? So that I could, this is my only shot, I want to buy the nicest things. I want to have the nicest things. I want to have the most fun experiences. And if I could say a third thing, it's, it's all tied to getting the most money. My decisions would be driven by how much money can I, what do I have to do to get, I might even, probably not, because it's maybe not worth it, might be open to cheating and taking and stealing potentially because you just want to have the most you can get. Buy the nicest things, have the most fun. And here's a big one. We need to retire as early as possible. Got to retire as early as possible while still having enough money set aside to get really good health care so that I can live as long as possible because it's just this life. You want to know what's unfortunate? 
I just described the way most Americans live. You want to know what's worse than that? I just described the way most Christians live. Decisions, young people, in churches, in this building right now, making their decisions, going through life. How much money? It's all about the money. All this, how much money? What can I get? Can I buy the nicest things? Can I do the funnest things? And can I retire really early? Got to retire really early. You say, Jeff, why is that so unfortunate? Here's why. That is all based on this idea if there was no resurrection. But that's the fallacy of it all. If you're taking notes, write this thought. The fact of the resurrection means that a life of eternal significance far outweighs and trumps a life of making decisions based on temporary pleasure. If there were no resurrection, I'd be with you. But the fact of the resurrection means we must make decisions that have eternal significance and not just temporary pleasure in mind. So here come the Sadducees and they have a question for the Lord in verse 23 to 28. Look at verse 24. Teacher Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, they said, Moses said, his brother must marry his widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now remember, this is from Deuteronomy 25 that I mentioned a while ago. What's significant about that? Deuteronomy means two, the second law, the second giving of the law. Watch. This is the 40th year of wilderness wanderings. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're going to get the victory, and God is going to divide the land among the 12 tribes, and that tribe will have that section and that and that. And among these land sections based on tribe is going to be broken down by family and by individual. And so really these laws are being set up. main thing is this to protect the inheritance and the land allotments. So you really need to have an heir. And so the oldest would be honored the most. He would get this double portion. That would be his land. You want it to be state. You want that? Then marry your number two. Marry his widow. Raise up children. In other words, I'm dying. You going to marry her, right? And raise up children and, put, and give them my name. This mattered a lot to them. And it was to protect the inheritance and the land rights. Now, Sproul, now we're, that was 1,500 years before this. Now we're in the time of Christ. R.C. Sproul writes the following concerning the Sadducees. So we're talking about this Levirate marriage law where the brother has to step in if the other brother, the older brother, has died with no children. Sproul writes, quote, This was a significant law for the Sadducees who believed, remember they don't believe in life after death, but he writes, it's a, a significant law for the Sadducees who believed that the only sense of life after death, so Jeff, they don't believe, what? The only sense of life after death that a person could experience was through his offspring. So to die with no children was to be dead and gone forever. In other words, I'm dying, I have no children, I know this is it for me, but I want to be remembered. I want to be, you know, not forgotten. So would you raise up children? If you have a son, name him by my name, and that's what they would do. It's kind of like what you'll see some folks who have great resources and a lot of wealth, even today, when they come to the end of their life, they've set up things in their will, last will and testament, that ensure that a portion of their wealth will go to buy things, be it a building, a monument, a bell tower, a scholarship program, and make sure my name is attached to it because I don't want to be forgotten. I need to know that I, I lived a life of significance. I want people to remember me. Would you set it up that way? Very important to them that they have a legend left in place. It's kind of a two-edge. I thought about that, and I'm thinking, okay, if I really, if I was unsaved, wouldn't you do that? Like, yeah, you'd really care about being remembered, but on the flip side of that, like, wait, if you're dead, you won't really care? <laughs> Doesn't matter, but that's the way the mind works. Last thought on point number one. Look at verse 28. You heard this scenario. We had these seven brothers in the resurrection. Therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Do you guys hear their sarcasm? They don't believe this. A teacher, great teacher, old respected one. We've got this scenario, and we just need to ask you your answer. So in the resurrection, I'm going to get it out. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And you kind of see them winking at each other out of the corner of their eye. We got him. They think they're really smart. They've come up with this great, brilliant question, very much on the line with the irresistible force. If it were to meet the immovable object, what would happen? Right? 
got this irresistible, the philosophers have come up. What would happen? There's this irresistible force. Nothing can stop it. It goes through whatever's in its way. Yeah, but there's this thing out in space, and it's an immovable object. Nothing goes through it. Nothing penetrates it. Nothing pushes it back. What happens to the beast? Okay, I don't know. We're getting ready to find out. One of them is not either. Either one's not irresistible or one's not immovable, right? That's the answer to that question, the best I could come up with. But these guys, they're really smart, and they think they've come up with something really clever. So whose wife is she going to be? The first one? He was first. The last one, he's the last one she was married to. Surely God's not going to have her married to all of them. Does she get to pick? Are they going to scrap it out? Whose wife is she going to be? They think they have a great question. Jesus gives his answer, number two this morning. Jesus declares and proves the resurrection. Jesus declares and proves. He declares the resurrection. Jesus proves the resurrection. How? Look at verse 29. So this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning and in this section. Watch verse 29. Jesus answered them, you were wrong. I like, I like, I love Jesus, right? Don't you just like that? We got this brilliant question, so whose wife is she going to be? We got him. You're wrong. What? You're wrong. The answer is you're wrong. You're as wrong as you can be. MacArthur notes that the, the phrase, those two, you are wrong, are mistaken, the you are wrong. Watch this. Here's what he writes. That are wrong means to go astray, wander off, or deceive. He writes, in its form here, in verse 29, it means to lead oneself off course. Y'all should be paying attention. To lead oneself off course or to stray from the truth, unquote. Here's what the Lord is saying. You're wrong. Here's the truth. You guys have strayed, gone off course, veered off from the truth. You're not in the truth. You've gone off on your own way and you've deceived yourselves. You're wrong. You're dead wrong. Really what he's saying is, on like the most important issue in the world, you are wrong. You're wrong. Why are you wrong? Two are very explicit. I'm going to say there's a third implicit in Jesus' response. Jesus is going to give them three reasons why you're wrong. So this morning you may be saying, man, I wonder what is our takeaway from the text today. This section is really our takeaway. As much as the overall theme of a resurrection. If you're taking notes, write this down. Jesus in verse 29 and verse 30 is going to tell them you are wrong for at least three reasons you lack Three things. Look at verse 29. You are wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Number one, they are wrong because they lack knowledge of the Scriptures. That tells me something. You want to be right? You need knowledge of the Scriptures. You want to be wrong? Lack knowledge of the Scriptures. Number two, they are wrong because they lack knowledge and faith. They lack knowledge of God's almighty power. They don't believe in God's almighty power, even the power to raise the dead. They lack belief in God's almighty power. So those two are very clear in verse 29. I'm going to propose to you that there's another answer why they are wrong. You're long, wrong. You veered off course. There's the truth. You're not on the road of truth. You've reached the wrong conclusions. Here's why. You don't know the scriptures. You don't know the power of God. Number three, you are lacking, you ready, an awareness that the next life is far different than this life. So you think the next life is just like this life, and that's why you're wrong. You lack an awareness the next life is very different from this life. So here's what I want to do. I want us to break down those three thoughts just for a few minutes each, and then we'll go from there. Notice verse 29. Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. I'm going to admit to you, I'm going to have, you say, Jeff, seriously, is this next note really something you're actually going to have us to write? Yes. This is going to be probably the plainest, simplest, most common, obvious note. If you come to Grace View very often, then you know this, but I'm going to propose to you, it is an extremely neglected idea. Based off verse 29, write this down. Ladies and gentlemen, our only sure footing in this life our only sure footing in this life is three things. 
You must, you, you say, I want to be right. I don't want to be wrong. Your only sure footing is to know what the Bible says. Number two, it is to believe what the Bible says. Number three, obey what the Bible... You say, Jeff, seriously, that's our... No- yes. Guys, ladies and gentlemen, your only sure footing in this life is to know, believe, and obey the Word of God. You have to know the Word of God. I believe this is highly neglected. You say, Jeff, this is such a common note, such an obvious, we don't even need to write it. I want to ask you this question. Does your lifestyle reflect a belief in that statement? My only sure footing, everybody wants sure footing, everybody wants to be right, we don't want to be wrong on the things that matter the most. My only sure footing is to know the Scriptures, believe the Scriptures, and obey the Scriptures. Does your life reflect a true belief in that? Let me go further. Have you made, here's a question for you to answer inside your, really evaluate. Have you made a greater knowledge of God's Word a lifelong pursuit? Have you personally made a greater knowledge or are you like, I've got a knowledge of God's Word, it's pretty much going to, it's good, I heard it when I was a child, same amount, I'm going to live for that. Do you know what I realized a few minutes ago in my office? Being here a little over five years now. I'm at that time period where most pastors move on. And there's various reasons, there's often reasons to. And God calls people to different things. I'll tell you one of the benefits of moving on after about five years. I got a whole, I got two or three drawers verse of, uh, filled with these things in there. If I were to go somewhere else, All right, everybody turning in your Bibles this morning. We're going to look at uh, Matthew 22. My week changes. I'll tell you right now, my life changes a lot. I'd be doing a lot of things that I feel guilty that I'm not always doing. But if the Lord would allow me what I would rather do, even though it's a lot of work and it's extremely intimidating, I would rather keep plowing through. I have a goal. I want to preach as much of the Word of God as I possibly can. I want to lead a group of people. Let's just keep going through the Word of God. Now, I could take Romans and Matthew and the things that we preach, go somewhere else, man, be that little three, four, five-year spark plug and got them some basic knowledge, and let's move over here and do that four or five times. But, man, I would like to just, let's keep growing. Let's go deeper. Let's don't just... Does your lifestyle illustrate that it is your goal to keep gaining a knowledge of all of the Scriptures for the rest of your life? It ought to be. But I ask it this way. Those of you who have, remembering our only sure footing is to know and believe and obey the Word of God. Those of you who have a knowledge of the Word of God, do you have it in place in your life that you pass that on to other people, what God has shown? Are you learning and are you passing it on to those who need what God has shown you? Say, Jeff, I'm doing it, but Jeff, I'm tired. kind of need a break. Yeah, that's called eternity. You get a break. Eternity. What you know has been given to you to pass on to other people, and I know it's a lot of work. Stay faithful. Don't quit. Don't wake up like if I feel inspired, and and next year I think I'll do something if I feel up to it. You've been given a responsibility. Keep pouring it into other people. Why? Our only sure footing is to know. Jesus says straight up, you know why you're wrong? You're wrong because you don't know the Scriptures. Spent longer on that than I planned. I'm still not done. i got one more thought. I'm in the middle of a set of three, right? Let's talk about this first one because I think there's actually three reasons the Sadducees don't know the Scriptures. So on your handout. You ready? You ready? Sadducees, the reason you're wrong is because you don't know the Scriptures. Number one, the reason you don't know the Scriptures is you straight up deny large portions of the Bible. The reason you don't believe in the, re- in the resurrection is because you don't believe in Job 19. You don't believe in Psalm 49. You don't believe in Isaiah 26. You don't believe in Daniel 12. That's your problem. Number two, you don't really know the section you say you, you accept. You say you accept these five books. You don't really know that section. You deny large portions of Scripture and you don't really know this section. Number three, here's your big problem. You assume things that the Bible doesn't say. Did you catch it? You deny things the Bible does say, and you assume things the Bible doesn't say. Do you guys know how many people in Anderson County think it's all judging of other people is sinful? Matthew chapter 7. 
Judge not that you be not judged. That's great. It's probably the only Bible verse you know. Doesn't mean all judgment is sinful. Money is evil. No, it's not. People make assumptions. People hear things the Bible doesn't say. You know what Jesus is saying? Did, did y'all miss the flaw in their question? Did you catch the flaw? In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Uh, you're wrong. Whoever said people are married in eternity? Uh, yeah, you've made assumptions. And I realize as I say that, some of you are like, uh, what? Yeah, we make assumptions. That's why we study the Bible. Even when it's not tingly and goosebumpy, we still need good theology to live our lives by. Number one, the reason you're wrong is because you don't know the Scriptures. Number two, you're wrong because you don't know the power of God. Write this down. They had, these Sadducees had such a low estimation of God's power, they really thought it would be a hard thing for God to raise people from the dead. <laughs> they don't know the power of God. I mean, really, they don't know the power of God. I'm going to tell you guys straight up, we don't know the power of God. But I have a lot more belief in the power of God than they did. I don't know why my mind went here, and I may regret it. You're going to say, Jeff, you're actually not talking about your point. You're taking us down another road. Work with me just for a second. We're talking about they did not believe in the power of God. They didn't know the, God, the power of the God of the Bible. Here's what I want you to do. Work with me for a moment. Quick little exercise. Do you realize that if we were to freeze a moment in time, I mean, we're just going to freeze it. We're going to analyze it. You ready? Three, two, one. We're going to take a snapshot, a moment in time. We have frozen it. I want you to listen. Here's what the Bible teaches. God knows literally every thought of all almost 8 billion people. A while ago, it's been a few seconds now, we're studying that moment ago that we just snapped, God at one and the same time knows literally every thought of every human being all over the planet. He knows, it. He knows all their physical makeup. He knows every single thought. He knows every, at that moment, He knows everything that all the angels, don't know how many there are, all the angels, what they are thinking at that moment. Every animal, every insect, reptile, bird, fish, they're out there thinking thoughts. Some are thinking, man, you look good. I'm getting ready to eat you. And some are thinking, uh-oh, you're getting ready to eat me. I'm going to run. Some are thinking, my back itches. I'm going to go rub it on that tree over there. God knows literally every thought that is going on. He knows every blade. We're talking about that moment. Every blade of grass, every grain of sand, every drop of water, every particle of air, every star, every planet, every bit of dust, large or small, in the universe. God knows it all together. You say, Jeff, you're talking about God's omniscience. Here's the thing. He knows all of that. And he is upholding all of that at the same time. He is upholding all of it. But here's the kicker. That's one snapshot. God knows the moments before and the moments before literally all of eternity past. And it's not just, man, he has some more great memory. No, he knows already everything that will happen through eternity. We have no clue what kind of being we're dealing with. These people are struggling over, can God raise the dead? <laughs> He called life from nothing. He can easily give life back after it has died. This is not a hard thing for God. You don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. And you make assumptions. You think the next life is going to be just like this life and that's where you mess up. If you're taking notes, write this. Jesus actually makes two corrections for the price of one. Did you catch it in verse 30? How does he make two corrections of their theology? He does so by speaking of the reality of both angels and the resurrection. Look, if you have your Bible open, you should. Verse 30, for in the resurrection. You see how Jesus just, matter of fact, in the resurrection, you don't believe it, but in the resurrection, verse 30, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. He's just said angels are real and the resurrection is real. But he doesn't stop. Did you catch what Jesus says? For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. What does that mean? So the Lord has now said angels are real and resurrection is a reality. And now He's telling us that our earthly marriages are only temporary. 
Piper has a book written, This Momentary Marriage. This Momentary Marriage. And right now I realize in the room there's some who have not really thought about this and maybe have not read this or have read this without really thinking about it, just trying to hurry up and check off a devotional reading for the day. What the Bible and what the Lord is saying here in the Gospels is that these marriages, Deanna and I have been married a little over 30 years. Back in June, celebrated our 30th year. Our marriage is only going to be on this earth. Why are we not married in the next life? I think I'm pretty safe in saying this. All those who lived in the Old Testament times, the reason that they're not going to be married to each other is because they will be married to God the Father. And those of us who've been saved from this time until these last 2,000 years and those who will join us in the future, we're not going to be married to each other because we will be married to Christ. So there are no human marriages. And right now I know that as I say that, there's somebody thinking this thought. Are we not even going to know that we were married? Let me just say a couple of things. One, we're not going to be dumber than we are now. Number two, we're not going to love less than we do. Are we not going to love each other? Are we not going to know? I mean, I had these big plans. He and I, we're going to go all over heaven together. Just the two of us, just off like... You might want to adjust your, your plan there. Feel free. Eternity is a long time. You could do that. You're just not going to be married to each other. Again, we're not going to know less. We're going to know more. This is important. We're not going to love less. We're going to love more. What's going to happen? But if we're not married to each other, yes, you will know who you were married to and you will love them far greater than you do now, far more perfectly than you do now, but don't let this ruin it. This is reality. That same greater, far greater, far more perfect love is going to be exhibited and cast upon everyone that is in heaven instead of so preferential in our love like we are now. I'll just tell you guys, I love you guys. Love you ladies. I just love Deanna way more than I love all the rest of you. That's the facts. I love Deanna more than any other woman in the world. I have a preferential love. When I get there, I will not love her more than all the rest of you. Nor will you love me less than anyone else there. That's what the Bible teaches us. One more thought out of verse 30, and I've got to hit verse 31. Look at 30. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels. Oh, here we go. People make assumptions. I promise I'm not on Facebook, so if you have this on Facebook, you make whatever corrections the Lord leads. Sometimes people use this section and its counterparts in Luke and Mark to really promote a false doctrine, and the false doctrine is saying something that Jesus did not say. It's clear. Jesus did not say that when Christians die that we become angels. So if you have this in your theology, if you have this in your words, if you have this posted somewhere, someone dies, heaven just gained another angel. Or if a little child dies, heaven just gained another little angel. No, it didn't. We do not become angels. We are the sons of God. We become like angels. How do we become? What does that mean? How are we like angels? Really in three ways, but I don't have you writing down two of them. We are like angels in that we do not marry in the next life and in that we do not, it's implied, procreate in the next life. The reason we don't procreate in the next life, I'm going to read to you Luke. Maybe you want to write it down to the side. Luke chapter 20, verse 36, talks about why. For they, talking about when we get to heaven, this, this, what, I should have had this on the screen. For they cannot die anymore, Jesus says. They cannot die, cannot die anymore because they are equal to the angels and are sons of God, being sons of, the resurre- uh, sons of the resurrection. Did you catch it? How are we like the angels? We don't die. Angels don't die. We don't procreate and we don't marry. Angels don't, there are no, oh, look at that cute little baby angel. There are no baby angels. It's the same number of angels as the day God created them. There aren't more, they're not less. They don't die, we will not die. We will not procreate. Why? We will not need to. The reason we procreate now is because we keep dying. If we did not keep propagating the human race, then within 120 years there would be no humans on the planet. We have to keep doing this, but in heaven, in eternity, in the kingdom, we cannot die. Now verse 31, and I'm not going to spend that long on this, as you may think, and I realize that most of you already know what we're about to say, and praise the Lord for that. Let's just deepen this truth. So he answers the question, she's not going to be married to any of them, she'll be married to God. 
unless she lived and she had already passed away in their scenario. By the way, I think the first thing, if I would have been the Lord, I think my first response, whose wife will she be? I think I would have said, well, number one, you're lying. Your little story's made up. There were no seven brothers. You made this up. Number two, she's not going to be any of their wives because she does, she's not married in the kingdom. If she was a believer in trusting in the promises of God, then she is married to God in the next life. But now look at verse 31. Having answered the question, the Lord is not willing just to stop and leave it hanging there. Now he wants to go further. And as for the resurrection of the dead, since we're talking about this, let's correct your theology. Have you not read what was said to you by God? As to the resurrection of the dead, have you not read? Catch that? Have you not read? This thought hit me. Jesus' words are authoritative and binding all by themselves. So just by referring to the resurrection as a matter of fact was enough, but he knows you don't accept my words as authority. So let's go watch. Let's talk about Exodus chapter 3, verse number 6, and use that portion of Scripture that you guys do accept, and the Lord uses Exodus 3, verse 6, to prove from the portion of Scripture that they do accept and believe that the resurrection is, in fact, a reality, and that's what the Lord does. He prefaces it with this. Before he gives the quote of the passage, the Lord says, Have you not read? Hey, guys, listen. These are the Sadducees. Have you not read Exodus 3.6? What's the answer? Had they read Exodus 3.6? Yes. Many, 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 probably hundreds of times. They didn't have 66 books of the Bible to be accountable for. They didn't even have what we have broken down into 39 books of the Old Testament. They only have five. They've read this over and over. Isn't the Lord in essence saying this? Have you not read thoughtfully? Grace, if you catch this. Have you not read with understanding? The section you do believe in, have you not read with an intention to know what God is saying in the text? Have you not read with a determination that I want to know what the text says and I will accept it whether I like it or not? Have you not read the text? Apparently you haven't read it with acceptance and belief and intentionality and with understanding. And so the Lord then takes us to verse 32. Have you not read that which was said to you by God? Verse 32. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not God of the dead, but of the living. Have you not read that before? Obviously, the Lord is making a point. He doesn't spell it out. What is that point? Jesus is saying, when you've read your Bible, you remember the section where there's this burning bush and Moses, you love Moses, you guys love Moses, his books are the only ones you accept. Do you remember when Moses was coming to the burning bush and God started speaking him out of that and Moses wants to know what God's will is for him and God says, you're going to go back and lead the children of Israel out of slavery and he wants to know, who am I talking to? Jesus is saying, have you never noticed how God answers by saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? Have you never read that? What is God not saying? He's not saying, hey Moses, yes Lord, who are you? You want to know who I am? I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Jacob. I was the God of Isaac. I'll be your God too. And I'll lead the children of Israel. God does not say that. Why? That would be a wrong representation of the truth. God does not say, I was their God. Why? Because He is their God. If He was their God, that would be implying that they are now dead. But instead, Christ is saying that God's answer to Moses is, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob because they are still alive. I am still their God. I am still and they are still. Though not in heaven. I'm not going to go into this. I'll just throw it out. Though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been dead for hundreds of years at this point, they were not yet into heaven. The Bible is clear. They were in a place of paradise called Abraham's bosom. Pretty clear, seems to me, that they're waiting for their sins to be not just covered, but literally paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. And then they're ushered into heaven. You say, Jeff, that was them back then. What happens to my loved one? I understand we've had some deaths recently. That's a funeral of a 36-year-old man just yesterday. A great funeral. What's taking place in this? The Lord is showing in Romans, in the books of, to the Corinthians. Say, Jeff, what happens to our loved one now? 
Do they go to paradise? Do they go to Abraham's bosom? No. You say, what happens to their body? What happens to their soul and their spirit? Listen, the Bible's clear. Their body is here on earth for now. Their soul and spirit has gone immediately to be with the Lord. Their soul and spirit never dies. There is life after death. There is life beyond death. And they're awaiting their resurrected body. Notice one more thing out of verse 32, quickly. Jesus says, have you never read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not, the God, of, he's not God of the dead, but of the living. I think this, I'm just going to touch it. You ready? A while ago, I implored you guys, have a lifestyle of learning the Scripture. Spend your rest of your life learning and knowing and believing and obeying the Word of God. What approach, when we do this, when we study and when we listen and when we read, what approach are we? Can I just point out the obvious that the Lord's whole point in verse 32 boils down to one single word. What word is it? What word? All of His argument is based on the word. Another word. Watch. Have you not read what was said to you by God? How do we know that there is a resurrection? Jesus' answer, God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What did He not say? I was the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. His whole argument is built on one word, the word what? Am. I am. Ladies and gentlemen, please, grace for you, listen. When you read your Bible... Read it prayerfully and study it prayerfully. It very well could be that the whole text is opened up by one single word. God's truth in the passage, the point of the passage, even His application to your life that day could be writing on one word. I've said it over and over. Guys, it would be better to read fewer passages of Scripture every day slowly, intentionally, prayerfully, rather than checking off three or four chapters that you're not being fed from. Get every word. Note the key words. Don't move ahead in a passage until you understand what you have read. They've read this hundreds of times and somehow they've missed the concept. I am the God. They are alive. And He is alive. Verse 33. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at His teaching. I remember, as I read, I pointed your attention over to 34. When the Pharisees heard that, heard that, He had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together. And the Pharisees are going to bring one more question trying to test the Lord. But you catch what verse 34? It's not on your screen. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees. I like that. Here they come. They think they're brilliant. think they're really smart. They worked really hard. We've been saving this question. It's probably one maybe they used often. They come and they pose it to Jesus. Their motive is to make Jesus look foolish and to dispel and show as utterly foolish, you know, absurd. I mean, whose wife is she going to be? Do you see the absurdity of the whole resurrection doctrine? You guys need to stop believing that. Instead of him looking foolish, they look foolish. He looks brilliant. Jesus proves the doctrine of the resurrection from the very section of Scripture that they accept. So much so, they don't come out. Yeah, but all they do is like... They lost. So thorough is their defeat. This one will be on the screen, I think. Look at Luke 20. Watch verse 39. I hope you get it. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. How thorough was this defeat of the Sadducees? Verse 39, Matthew didn't include it. Luke does. Do you see it? Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. Scribes. They're called the scribes of the What? Do y'all remember that? Have you heard that? They're called the scribes of the Pharisees. That tells me though they had left from their question about taxes, some of them have mingled back and here come the Sadducees. So there's this crowd, Jesus is still teaching. Can I just read between the lines? Here are the Pharisees, there's Jesus, here's the Sadducees. They know they lost the last round. Up oh, here comes the Sadducees. They look like they got something up their sleeve. Here they go. There's these seven brothers. And they're probably thinking, oh, they're using the seven brothers one. That's the one they always get us with. Man, I wish they just believed in Job and Psalms and Isaiah and Daniel. But we can't ever get these guys. I wonder what he'll do with it. And they're sitting here. They heard that again. And then they go to Jesus. And all of a sudden it's like, they're wrong. 
Don't know the scriptures. And then, oh, 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 boo, roast dad. This is, this is kind of what's happening. We don't like you. We hate you. But verse 39, again, I think I've already lost, lost my place. Is that still? Yeah, look at there. Teacher, you've spoken well. That was good. We're going to remember that one. Exodus 3, 6. Yeah. Never again will you beat us. Way to go. Thank you. We're going to kill you in a couple of days. That's their thought. That was a thorough defeat. So my last thought this morning, again, as we finish, is this. Look at 32 one more time. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Wearsby writes the following. You see it? It's, it's, it's odd how it's written. Wearsby writes, by repeating the God of, repeating that three times. Do you see it? He doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Wearsby offers, quote, by repeating the God of, the Lord was saying that He knew them and loved them personally and individually, unquote. You see it? Jesus is pointing out that when the Father answered Moses, His answer was, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I know Him. I know Him. I, know. I love Him. I love Him. I love Him. All you got to do is read the book of Genesis. God knows them. God loves them. God is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Jeff Bartlett. He's the God of me. He knows me. He loves me. I know Him. I lo he loves me a lot more than I love Him. I love Him. Do you guys understand? He's the God of many people in this room. Not everyone. Many people in this room. He's their God. He knows them. He loves them individually. They know Him and they love Him. And I'm not trying to give you a whiplash. Hey, you've got to fit in the old gospel challenge out of a passage here. No, no, no. The question is pretty simple. Is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob and the God of Jeff and the God of Danny and the God of Don and the God of Deanna and the God of Carol and the God of Victor? And is He your God? Is He the God of you? That's the question. Can you honestly say, He's the God of me? Second question. Are you among the living or are you among the dead? You. Are you among the living? Third question. You're sitting there and everybody in here is saying, yes, He's my God and I'm among the living. What happened for that to be true? What exactly happened? Fourth question. When did that happen? Fifth question. Does, this is big, does your life reflect that He is your God? Does your life, is it crystal clear, the God of the Bible is that person's God, insert your name. Is that true? Is that clear? Or is it kind of fuzzy and gray? I hope I've lived a life where you know the God of the Bible is Jeff Bartlett's God. If I'm not living that life, I have failed. If you are not living a life that is so clear, then we need to wonder, is He your God? The world is filled with people. I'm telling you, listen. The world is filled with people who say, oh, I believe the Bible. I believe there's life after death. Strangest thing. Their life doesn't look like it. Watch. I'm almost done. Watch. Their whole thought, their thoughts are extremely disproportionate. Their thoughts are always on the things of this life. They hardly ever think about the next life. Their affections. They say, oh yeah, I believe the Bible, I believe in life after death, and yes, God is my God. Their affections are always for things of this life, not for the things of the next life. Their time is spent all on this life, very disproportionately. Their resources. 
are all spent on things on this life. They don't spend the resources on things of the next life. I wish you could get what I'm about to say. See this little pen? If I could make a dot, just a little dot, and just let it hang out in the middle of this room. Just let that dot hang there. You see it? It's over there. That dot is human history. And all this around it is eternity. The state of resurrectedness. We put so much thought and affection and time and our resources into that little dot. And that little dot represents six, 7,000 years of human history. And in there you have, what, 18 years so far? 12? Say, Jeff, I wish. I'm 85. Okay, 85 out of that six, seven. Look at the room. We put all this attention into that. I don't know about you guys. I want to be right. I want to be right. How? I need to know the Word. I need to obey the Word. I need to really believe in the power of God when God says there is going to be death and there's going to be a resurrection and there's going to be a judgment and there will be a kingdom. God has and will carry that out. He has the ability. He will carry that out. I need to be putting more attention, not just on the little dot, but on all the effects of that. So here's, here's where I conclude. We've got to do a better job at seeing how that little dot, this life that dominates our thoughts and affections and our time and our resources, how does that relate to the rest of it? A thought I've shared probably now seven, eight times in five years. At least seven, eight times I share it again. For a Christian, the next life, all that that surrounds, by the way, that little dot and all this around it, knock these walls out and just keep on going and going. Eternity is a long time. It, it's endless. My thought for you this morning is one I've shared many times. For the Christian, the next life is better than this life in every way except two things. That little dot, this life is your one chance to live by faith. Once you die and you go see it, you can never come back and live by faith. Right now, you're living by faith. Then you see it. Faith is gone. 1 Corinthians 13 makes that clear. Now abides faith, hope, charity, love. After this, faith's going to be gone. Knowledge, boy, that one knows a lot. Knowledge is gone. Mysteries are gone. Knowledge and understanding. Faith, don't need it. Hope, hope's gone. We're going to talk about the one that remains next week. Well, you need to come next week. My, mind, my mind's already been trying to jump to next week. I'm like, stop. you got to focus on this week. You need to come next week. So, Jeff, you said there were two advantages of this life. Man, I kind of got it. Man, we need to... <laughs> that matters. All of this other is actually based on the little dot. This is your one chance to live by faith, and this is your one chance to point people toward Christ. That's it. Once you get there, you can't go back and point people to Christ. So I'm asking you guys, does that describe you? Are you living by faith? Is there anything in your life you're like, I'm having to live by faith in this area? God loves faith. And are you using these moments to point people toward Christ because there is a resurrection? The Sadducees were wrong. There is life after death and there's a judgment. And for those who trust Jesus, there is eternal life. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Heads bowed, eyes closed, please. Can I state the obvious? We will exist somewhere for eternity. Say, Jeff, we know that. Think about that. Think about it. Has it occurred to you that you're going to live forever? You're going to exist forever. I really mean this. Just, just go with me here. Just work for a moment. If your life on earth ended today, if your life on earth ended today, are you ready? There's an existence in the next life. If yours on earth ended today and your body is left here, where will your soul and spirit be? 
say, Jeff, I'm a Christian. Wonderful. Why do you say that? Are you ready? I'm not going to belabor this point. I'm just going to ask. We don't do this every week. I'm just wondering. Is there anyone present this morning? I want to be clear. Listen to the question. Is there anyone present this morning that said, uh, Hey, Jeff, I don't even know your last name. Doesn't matter. Is anyone here this morning by an uplifted hand that would say, I am not ready. I'm not a Christian. The God of the Bible is not my God. And I need to get that settled. Is there anyone like that here today? If that is you, you're saying, I'm not a Christian. I've never trusted Jesus. I'm not talking about, oh, I need to do something again and rededicate my life. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you have never been saved. The God of the Bible is not your God. Is there anyone like that? Just raise your hand quickly. Anyone like that? All right. Then let's ask this question. If your life here ended today, are you ready? Ready? Would you have any regrets? Would you have any regrets? Do you live now, to borrow from Jonathan Edwards 300 years ago, do you live now like you will be glad you lived when you see Christ? If you say, Jeff, I don't know that anyone does, I agree. But can I ask the next question just before we pray? What needs changed in your life? What changes need to be made? for the time that you have left because there is life after this life. There is a resurrection. There is a state of resurrectedness. You will live on. And now I'm talking to Christians. Have you made it a point? I'm going to spend time in the Word of God. I want to know all of it and I want to believe all of it and I want to put all of it into my life and I want to be pouring what God shows me into other people. Is there anything that needs to change? before our time on earth is done. This is your one chance to live by faith. This is your one chance to point people to Christ. We cannot come back and redo. Let's live with no regrets. Would you stand with me this morning? Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer. Father, Lord, I realize that this is a fearful passage to some. But Lord, I thank you that this is a very comforting passage to me because you sent Jesus to die for my sins and my brother's and sister's sins. Lord, I thank you for that day in 1979 where you allowed me to really, really hear the gospel. Though I'd heard it many times, Lord, you let me really hear it that night. And Lord, you gave me the faith to believe, and I thank you for that. And Lord, I thank you that life, really living, Awaits, Father, may I and this group of people be found faithful in this little section of time, realizing that how we live now greatly affects our placement in eternity that even matters more than this. Father, I pray that we would live as people who don't just say we believe in a resurrection. Father, may we not live like atheists. God, may we not live like practical atheists who say we believe the Bible, but live like we don't. Lord, may we live today as if we truly, honestly realize the resurrection is coming. May we live now like we would be glad we lived when we see Christ, but we pray it in His name.